What's up, guys? Welcome to the Humans of MarTech podcast. His name is John Taylor. My name is Phil Gamash. Our mission is to future-proof the humans behind the tech so you can have a successful and happy career in marketing. All right. What's up, everyone? Today, we have a super special guest on the show. This interview is more than 12 months in the making. You probably already follow him on Twitter. I've personally learned a bunch from him and know you're going to get a lot of value from our conversation today. Today, we're joined by Corey Haynes. He's a full-time creator and the former head of growth at Bear Metrics. These days, he keeps busy with many different things. He runs a weekly newsletter and a growing marketing community. He also manages multiple podcasts. He wrote a few SaaS marketing courses. He built, sold, and recently bought back a marketing job board, and he's a startup marketing consultant slash advisor. Most importantly, Corey is an all-around great dude with a world-class beard. Corey, we're super grateful to have you on the show, man. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you. I think that was probably the most uh, generous intro I've gotten, and great job, so I appreciate it. <laughs> I love it. I want to like transcribe it and clip that little thing and send that to every other podcast interview that I, that I do. Boom. No problem. Let's, let's set that up. I want to start off. Like I want to take you back to like September, 2020. I remember reading, Oh shit. Corey Haynes is leaving bare metrics to become a full-time creator. He wrote about this and kind of described it as you strapping on a space suit, launching into space and not really sure what your plan was, but kind of like figuring it out as you go. How has the journey been now, like a year and a half after that? And do, do you kind of know where you're going yet? <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. The last year has been uh, a whirlwind. I guess it's almost been like a year and a half now since I left Metrics. But um, for me, kind of the North Star, like guiding goal uh, has been to, to get into SaaS myself, to start a SaaS company, maybe even a couple of products and just have like a small portfolio of bets and multiple things kind of going at once and see where they all kind of take me. I knew that uh, one, doing that with a full-time job is pretty hard, especially when uh, I didn't want to like step on any toes at Bear Metrics since we sold to other SaaS startups. So I didn't want to like build something that ended up competing with one of our customers. Mm -hmm. So I just kind of knew like that wasn't really an option for me. I didn't want to get another job and then start working on those side projects as well. Uh, but also I wasn't really even close to building anything quite yet anyways. Uh, but I just wanted to kind of pull the trigger and jump and, uh, you know, strap onto the rocket ship, get into space. And then I could figure out where I was going from there. And, um, you know, on a, on a personal level, very, very challenging and, uh, very like a lot of learning on, uh, Hey, here's how to like manage cash flow for like all the different kind of feasts and famine cycles of freelancing and consulting. And, uh, just like knowing, where to kind of like find money and all the different revenue streams that you have when you're on your own, you don't have like a, a paycheck really coming through the door on a time management perspective. Uh, I've really learned how to be super, super, super ruthless with my time. Um, I would say for the first like four or five months, uh, you know, I had like this, I imagined once I left, I was like, Oh, I'm going to be free. I have so much time. I'm just going to get so much done. I'm going to crank out all these things are on my list. And then I didn't get anything done for like four months. And I was like, what is happening? And it's because I had so many different meetings, so many admin things. I was responding to emails. I was trying to like chip away at small things here and there, but I was never really moving the ball forward in any one direction. And so I learned to be really, really ruthless. So now I do most of my meetings, like 95% of my meetings on Wednesdays. The rest of the week is like completely wide open. And like, I set what I want to get done and I get those things done. And sometimes I work late, sometimes I work early, but you have to be really, really 
uh, ruthless, but um, it's been a great learning experience because really through the startups that I've worked for, uh, consulting, advising, freelancing, uh, now I'm basically like the, the marketing lead for SavvyCal as well. So that's kind of like helped bring back some stability in my life. And I see them all as like just kind of practice rounds and uh, getting in the reps and sets for learning how to build and grow a SaaS startup for when I do want to do that for myself and for my own. And especially the last year and a half, it's been like uh, an invaluable learning lesson. Um, bootstrapping SaaS is really, really hard. Like you have to put yourself in the right position. I would honestly, I, I wouldn't say that going like the VC route is easier because I think raising money is really, really hard and mm-hmm. it's a grind. And once you're on that track, there's a lot of expectations and it's a whole different game. But like in the early days, it's easier because you have money, you pay yourself a paycheck, you hire the people to work with you. Bootstrapping is is not easy. And so like I would count this, this last year and a half as like a part of my bootstrapping journey for building SaaS because it's all the work you have to do in order to be able to find, be financially stable to put your time on something else completely without like your whole world kind of exploding and going broke or like maxing out your credit cards. Um so doing the best I can, but uh, I think a pretty okay job so far. <laughs> well, one thing I want to ask about, you kind of mentioned about the the various different projects you're working on, like <clears throat> the idea of having multiple eggs in, in different baskets. Like what does, what is the appeal of that for your personality and how do you manage that? Like mm-hmm. as you're pushing these projects forward? Well, uh, for me, I think that it's not necessarily like shiny object syndrome. I think that's what a lot of people conflate with having a lot of projects So you just kind of like start one thing and then jump to the next one before you really kind of see the potential of it. I'm not really like that. It's more that I'm just like mega impatient and I just want to see all these things exist and I want to like do them and I'll do them all at once. My life is kind of like chaos sometimes. That's also why I leave, you know, four days out of the week, completely wide open to get a lot of like work, work done. Um, but for me, I just want to see those things exist and I just want to like work on them. And I don't really like, I'm kind of like a, a yes and person, like a, a both and where I want to have my cake and eat it too. And I just don't really like compromising and like leaving something for later. Um, so that's more of the kind of like the, the thought and the spirit behind multiple things. It's not really even like diversifying my income and like multiple revenue streams and millionaires have seven sources of income. Mm-hmm. It's more just like... <laughs> I just want to work on all those things. I think they're fun. I want to see them exist and I don't want to do them sequentially. I want to do them concurrently. Super cool. So like in-house freelance consultant entrepreneur. Now you're kind of like getting a taste of all of them kind of at the same time. And maybe someone in the audience right now is kind of thinking to themselves, I want to hire this Corey Haynes guy. Um, that maybe is not likely to happen. Like you Impossible. maybe get a lot of <laughs> offers to like go back in house. What would it take? So like, to get you back in house how or how would you design your ideal in-house role or scrap the question completely and tell me why the entrepreneurial journey is the only way to go mm. uh okay well i'll give you a um a humans and martech exclusive because i haven't talked about this really anywhere else but uh a couple months ago so for the last year i've been working with someone who we were going to build SaaS together and it's sort of like, that was like, gonna be like the main thing. This is, I'm putting most of my eggs in this basket as like long-term. I want to work with this person. Then it turned out basically like his other like business, his other SaaS project became too uh, successful to like really be able to mm-hmm. step away from even part-time. Um, so basically it came to a point where like, Hey, we're really good friends. 
we would love to do this, but it's just like not going to happen. It's just like not realistic for this stage of our lives. And that was a huge bummer because I was kind of just like, all right, well, do I go and find like a new technical co-founder or like, how do I even start to go about that? Do I, is the last year just like a huge, you know, false start basically? Um, do I go and get a job? Do I go like try to do more freelancing or like start an agency or something? And um, so I thought about this question fairly recently. Mm. Uh, I thought about it very seriously about going back in-house. Um, to be honest, my first, uh, like the first most appealing option would be to go full-time with SavvyCal with some sort of like profit sharing or like equity agreement on top of just, you know, like a, a paycheck. Um, SavvyCal is still very early on. Uh, I had a feeling like, like maybe make that work, but just not like immediately. And so it's kind of like, well, I can't really like think about that right now. And also I'm just like, I'm not going to freak out. I'm just going to let it sit there for a minute. Um, so I kind of, I was like, if I really wanted to go work somewhere else besides SavvyCal full-time, I think that it would be a, it would be a very short list of companies, either like a about to IPO uh, unicorn, like a Stripe or like just a really impressive, interesting company that I knew was just going to be like a moonshot and explode. And I'm still waiting for the day that Stripe IPO so I can dump my whole life savings in there <laughs> <laughs> because it's just a, a massive, massive success that they're holding out on uh, all of us investors. Um, or I would want to jump in really, really early stage as like basically like a co-founder, but like first marketing hire at a really early, early stage startup that I think would be like the next Stripe essentially. Because um, I think that if I did, if I went back full time, it wouldn't be in like a, a big corporate job. It wouldn't be like in like a series A or series B because you kind of like missed a lot of the work and you, there's like still like the, the hardest part ahead of you. So I'd kind of want to jump in really, really early, get a good deal on like equity and compensation, just be in it for the long haul. Like the next 10 years, I'm just going to devote myself to this or like really, really late uh, and have something that I knew was just like a grand slam, basically. Um, the work itself honestly doesn't matter a lot to me. Um, I love product marketing. I love demand gen. I love copywriting. I love all the lifecycle stuff. Actually, I don't love ops. Sorry, but <laughs> I'm not an ops person. Um, so like the, the role and responsibility and like, I don't need a team. Also, I could have a team. It's more just about like, <clears throat> what's the company? What's the stage? Um, or like basically like the opportunity of where the company's at. Uh, and um, would there be like enough autonomy for, for me to do the things that would be enjoyable and kind of within my circle of competence? Um, so ultimately I decided not to do that. <laughs> and, um, I've also, I don't want to start an agency. Didn't really want to take on more clients that would kind of feel like going backwards a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, so long story short, I found other sort of technical co-founders who are in like this dating phase right now, where it's kind of like, we're building small things and we're going to see how we work together, not like put a whole lot of stake into it of like, this is going to be like the thing that we work on for the next five years, but just like, Hey, let's shift something and have some fun along the process. Uh, so that's, that's where I'm at today and, uh, not for hire. Super cool. Thanks for sharing that. Um, 
like something that I've thought a lot about myself. Like I'm like entrepreneurial to like one day see myself like starting something, but like I, something I, I like debate a lot is like this idea of stress, like the stress of being the person or like the one of the two people like running things versus like being a co-pilot, like being someone who's kind of like going along mm -hmm. the rocket ship, like you kind of mentioned with Stripe, like how do you kind of like think about that? Like, do you, is that like something that kind of like sticks around? Like, are you just like, if I'm passionate enough about like something that I'm building, like the stress is going to be a positive stress. Like, do you think of that? Hmm. Um, for me, I think that, uh, I don't know if you've heard this concept, but there's like good stress and bad stress. I think good stress is called you stress and then bad stress is distress. And, um, for me, distress only comes when I feel like I'm doing a bad job or <clears throat> what I am doing that I am doing a good job isn't performing well. And I know that, and that's sort of like not an acceptable outcome. So it's sort of like coming to something bad. Um, or if I just know that I'm like letting down myself where like my motivation is down or like, I'm not getting enough work done or don't have like the energy levels that I have, but in general, like having high expectations, big goals, a lot of work in front of me, like that's like good stress. And it's, it's a lot of work. It's a lot to do, but I look forward to it. I like it. Um, nerd about nerd out about SaaS marketing. And I'm generally not too worried about like, uh, can I do this or like, will this work out? I'm sort of like a, this seems to all like make sense. As long as I do the best that I can, I'll just let the pieces fall where they may. And I generally like they, they fall pretty well and, and it works out. Um, that was true with Sabical. That was fairly true with parametrics. That was really true with cordial. Um, it's been true across a lot of the other startups that I've worked with and like the advice that I give them, I can be a little bit more prescriptive now. I'm not, I'm not too scared about being very like particular and specific about the things I tell them to do. Um, but yeah, stress isn't, isn't too bad for me personally. Uh, I think that like the problems I might have that would be distressful later on is if a couple of these kind of SaaS projects end up working out and now I sort of have a good problem, which is that I have multiple things to work on at once. That won't necessarily be like uh, a new thing for me because I've always been juggling a whole bunch of stuff, but I think I would have to figure out like, how do I not let those things become a distress because I feel like I'm letting someone down or because I'm not giving the time and energy that is needed for this thing to really see the potential of it. Uh, so that's how I, how I think about it. One of the, just as you were talking, I was thinking like somebody else, you know, sitting on the other side of this journey, thinking I want to strap on a, a space suit, a, a space suit. What skills do you think people should be focusing on in their like in-house career? You kind of earning your, your stripes, so to speak. What skills would you, would you recommend people focus on to prepare themselves for a journey that, uh, that you're taking? Mm. I think getting used to and, uh, and, and knowing how to think through uh, like owning a project or even just like a whole kind of area of responsibility. Like, all right, I'm tackling the blog and I'm going to manage everything between writing or hiring writers or editing, publishing, promoting content, like just getting used to owning an area, whether that's uh, content marketing or email marketing or demand gen events, whatever it is like just having one lane in the area. Because I think what can happen early on is that you, you specialize and you're sort of like, a contributor to an area of responsibility or some sort of channel. Um, and that kind of leaves you off the hook because you're like, well, as long as I'm doing what's needed of me for this project, mm -hmm. even if it doesn't work out, then like, you know, blood's not on, on my hands basically. And that's not really like a great 
thing to get used to. You want to get used to like, all right, this is mine. I'm going to tackle this. I'm going to think through this end to end. I want to make sure that this is successful uh, to give you like a little kind of snippet of this early on <clears throat> when I started as an intern actually at Cordial, and uh, they started throwing stuff at me like, Hey, we're, we need to like sponsor some events, do some research, figure out which events to sponsor. And then like, we have 500 grand to spend in the next couple of months. And I was like, Holy, like you're giving an intern this responsibility, <laughs> but they were just like, you know, kind of generous, generous enough to be like, all right, here you go. Have at it. And, um, I took it and ran with it. And to be honest, I hate events, but I was like, this is my one chance to like show some ownership and some responsibility at this. So I'm not going to squander it. So yeah, I found the conferences. I had no idea what I was doing. I'd talked to people and got advice and got a lot of feedback along the way, but we scheduled them. We spent the money, we planned and coordinated all the travel schedules and cocktail parties and, uh, the booths and, who's going to go where and how do we get salespeople to, you know, actually get meetings and make the most of these events. Um, but I could have just been like, Hey, I can't do that. Or like, I need, you know, I'm going to basically like push this off to someone else and like, they're going to help me do it, but it's still like not really going to be my responsibility. So just learning how to take on responsibility and really have that ownership, uh, be a part of what you do. It, it's a totally different experience. Like being a part of something that happens in marketing versus like, I am the driver of this thing that is happening. And, uh, and it forces you to be really objective and to really be kind of like a, a truth seeker. Just be like, mm-hmm. you know, maybe this doesn't work out or like, maybe I was wrong about the way this, that this, that this thing worked. I remember actually early on, I was, uh, after conferences, we were like, all right, we need to fix our, our website. I came up with like the worst website copy of all time, just like slapped a whole bunch of chat bots on there. That's when drift was really hot. I had no idea what I was doing. Nothing worked, nothing happened. And I was like, Oh yeah. I was like really wrong about that. <laughs> it didn't really matter at the end of the day. Cause it was like, you know, a couple months that was kind of just like lost in progress, but like it didn't hurt sales. It didn't, it's just like nothing good happened out of that. Right. But uh, after that too, I was, I was kind of riding the high of all these events. And I was like, yeah, I need to like really be honest with myself about this stuff. Like maybe I don't know everything. I need to really be objective about what this thing work or like, is this right for us? And not just want to do things my way or like what the ideas I have are, but like, what is, what has the most promise to actually work and drive results for the company? Let's do that thing. And I'm willing to be wrong or adjust course or fix things along the way or change it completely. Because I just, at the end of the day, want like the best outcome for whatever it is that this thing is that I'm, I have res- responsibility over. Very cool. The beauty of startups, eh? getting to right. wear all those hats and like drive big projects sometimes with big budgets. I remember mm-hmm. a couple of years ago, like around the time that you left Bear Metrics, like you, you spent a lot of time like chatting with a bunch of different folks, wearing a bunch of those different hats and in different roles and stuff like that. Uh, you reached out to close, like you and I chatted about attribution. Um, what were mm-hmm. like some of the things that stood out in, in the groups that you chatted with? Like, was that part of like your, I'm thinking of maybe one day building a SaaS and like, I'm doing like some research here and maybe talk about like, what's the hardest role to hire for uh, in marketing? Mm-hmm. And, and why it's operations. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, well, um, yeah, actually when I talked with you, I, I was really hot on this idea of uh, marketing attribution and building software to, to solve mm-hmm. that. Um, I'm kind of convinced that at this point, because of the direction with uh, data and privacy laws, 
and uh, a lot of the deprecating of technology around cookies and tracking and um, browser technology that it's sort of a lost cause. Like we might be able to like re out this conversation, maybe like five years once we, the pendulum swings back in the other direction away from a lot of its privacy and, and data stuff. But right now it's, it's basically impossible to have or, or to, to build an underlying technology that would solve marketing attribution. It's just a total crapshoot. Um, sure. You can like piece things together, but like, really, if you want to like solve it, solve it for SaaS, it's a little bit easier for e-commerce and for products and stuff, but for SaaS, if you want to solve it, it's impossible. So after about 50 conversations, one of which was with you, we realized that, yeah, this is actually a pretty impossible task, but market attribution by far was the biggest and most painful problem across every marketing organization that I talked to mm. and probably still is. Because at the, at, the, at the end of the day, that's literally what matters is what is working in marketing. If you can't prove that, if you don't know it, you're misplacing dollars, uh, you are optimizing for the wrong metrics, you are going after the wrong channels, you're not using your budget in a way that is profitable to build and grow the company. So that is like the thing, that's the crux of the whole thing working is how do we know that uh, if we deploy this dollar, it will result in $2 in the ARR uh, for the business, right? Um, a lot of the other really painful problems were around, um, I would say, yeah, around operations and just like uh, kind of meshing with sales and a lot of the kind of marketing automation stuff around personalization and how do we like connect all the dots so that like people get the right experience at the right time for the right life cycle, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I would say just like data in general is really, really difficult. Um, tools like Segment and Rudder Stack and like if you build your own data warehouse and whatnot kind of solve that, but it's still like a massive headache to, to manage and to like make any tweak or change. Um, and similarly, like those operations roles are really, really difficult to hire for because like who knows how to do that? It's just, you're looking for a unicorn. It's like, you're looking for an engineer who likes marketing and mm -hmm. they like getting in the weeds with like data and like automations and all this stuff. And so that's really hard, but you know, honestly though, I was thinking about it and um, I think that the, the hardest role in marketing to hire for just in general, uh, it's difficult because I mean, maybe I'm like thinking about this wrong or interpreting the question wrong, but I think that the, the hardest person to get right to hire for is basically just like a head of marketing mm. because there are so many bad people out there mm. <laughs> who look qualified on paper, but just aren't, and just are really bad. Mm. Uh, again, to be honest. Mm -hmm. So at my time in Cordial, I think that, you know, within about two years, we went through five different marketing leaders and all of them were crap. Sorry. But like, they were all complete trash, had no idea what they were doing no managerial skills, no leadership skills, no budgeting skills, like couldn't even tell you what HubSpot did. And I was like, how are you in this place? How did you even get hired? <laughs> yeah. So there are a lot of roles that are really hard to find people for like, like ops. Uh, I think demand gen is like a pretty, so like a pretty specialized skill set in, uh, in SaaS, especially when you want to find a SaaS marketer for demand gen, um, content marketing is getting easier and easier. That's probably one of the more easy roles to hire for. But like to get a marketing leader right, such a critical position in the company and normal. I mean, like there's a reason why it has the highest attrition and the highest turnover It's because it's hard to find the right person. Um, so that that's my answer, uh, final answer for hardest position yeah. to hire for. 
This is a great answer. Um, I want to dive a little deeper on that. Like what, what do you think makes up the DNA of a great marketing leader at a SaaS company? Hmm. I just don't think that you can be a marketing leader and not be able to like get your hands dirty and execute and do the work yourself. Mm-hmm. Maybe, you know, really late stage when you're more like CMO, VP of marketing level truly. And you have like, you know, 20 to 50 people on your team, you know, it's a lot more about leadership and managerial skills and uh, actually more like budgeting kind of capital allocation. How do we get all of people working in the right direction, working on the right things. But I would say for like a director of marketing, head of marketing, you know, early stage VP of marketing, you just have to be able to do the work and you have to be really good at it. I think that's why, uh, you know, Dave Gerhardt was such a like massive success and um, sort of like unicorn when he was at Drift was, he was, uh, I mean, he was amazing at doing the work, right? He was like incredible marketer at doing the work. Mm -hmm. And early on, you just need people who can get their hands dirty and get down to business and crank out some landing pages, crank out some email campaigns, like really think through the ads and like be strategic about like, do you know your market really well where you can sponsor the right podcasts and you can show up in the right communities and you can make the right connections for your sales team and your, your marketing team and do the right events and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's not really about like the people skills and the leadership and like just you know, managing a team, making sure that everyone shows up to your daily standup. It's like, no, it's about doing the work. And I think also having their respect to other people under you, if you can do the work, makes them a lot more productive, a lot more motivated, and they will get a lot more done knowing that they have a leader who can actually help them with their work rather than someone who, who's just like, yeah, let me know how I can support you. And then like in your next one-on-one next week, you know, uh, nothing's changed, right? You're still alone doing the work yourself. Mm-hmm. maybe mediocrely or just kind of stuck and blocked because they're not really doing anything. They're just sitting on their hands, uh, you know, going through meeting to meeting to meeting, reporting to leadership. Um, so I think it's really about, I think, you know, for earlier stage companies, you know, maybe like, uh, you know, seed through series B ish. Mm-hmm. It's really, really about being able to do the work and managing the people. You can't be a crap leader. Of course. I think it's kind of like, <laughs> yeah. we don't, we don't need to say that. Right. But you have to also be able to do the work. Well, and your advice, just to tie back to something you said earlier, like the advice around owning, owning a project, like there's a straight line from owning projects to being a uh, team lead. You own projects, yeah. mm-hmm. you can own all of marketing eventually at the, the transferable skill sets. Yeah. Yeah. You can't not know what you're doing in any one area. That's a huge blind spot. And that area will, will absolutely hurt because either that person won't know really what they're doing and they'll do a subpar job. And that basically reflects badly on you. Um, or uh, it's just not going to get done at all. Cause you're like, I don't know what this whole like events thing is. We're not going to touch that. I'm not that type of marketer. It's like, no, dude, you have to do everything. You have to do whatever the business needs. Yeah. Yeah. Get her done. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Like really good advice for, for especially that early stage marketing role. Right. Like you, you actually tweeted about this uh, a few times. Like one of my favorite tweets that you wrote was like um, potentially one day, like writing a practical book on early stage marketing. So like the folks that are listening to the podcast right now that are like in an entry-level role or like mid-level management that are like one day hoping or like thinking of, of leading an early stage marketing team or even mid-stage marketing team. 
do you did you ever get around to to writing that book and like what what would like the the rough chapters look like uh for for like knowing because like there's so many things you can specialize in marketing right like you say you need to know how to do the work but like the the t-shaped marketer is like so vast and varied like how how would you break it down like what are the most important parts of early stage marketing my goal is to have it done by the end of 2022 this year nice. uh, we'll see basically i'm i'm working through uh, like a, a framework. I don't know if you guys know Rob Fitzpatrick. He's the author of The Mom Test, which is a great book, even for marketers, about how to talk to your customers because they're mostly lying to you very nicely. They're just sort of white lies. But um, he has a whole framework around how to write useful books. And so I'm kind of going through his process. But I started with the table of contents. And the table of contents is basically supposed to act as like the skeleton of high level learning outcomes and topics to hit and also what not to hit. So the frame of reference here is that it's for how to grow a SaaS startup with limited time, budget resources, basically like early stage companies. I'm not like a late stage scale up, you know, to a unicorn type of marketer. Um, but if you're a founder, first time marketing hire, uh, and you kind of struggling to kickstart or accelerate growth, you know, create some kind of scalable marketing channels, then this will help you basically create that plan and go and do the work and not have any sort of like area of weakness or things that you can't do. Um, so uh, it's actually very similar to, I'm kind of like repackaging a lot of the the course material. So it's not really a lot of like writing for me. It's going to be a lot of transcribing and like assembling stuff that I've already created from a lot of other courses and newsletters and podcasts and things I've done in the past. But the, the, the loose structure uh, is kind of like, all right, we have table stakes, like all marketing is derivative of the product. Um, here's how you measure product market fit, or if you know it that way, you're not like throwing money into a leaky bucket and marketing something that isn't really ready for, for traction, uh, how to pick a great market or expand to great markets, uh, and then like common myths and mistakes that hold people back. And then it like really starts with customer research. I'm a big believer in this. You can let customers tell you how they want to be marketed to and the market, the customers basically set the, the strategy for, um, Here's the copywriting. Here's like the thing that resonates. Here are all the areas that they hang out. Um, here are the most likely value propositions and, uh, and offers to resonate with them. And, uh, and here's how we go and find more people like this. So I first start with online sleuthing where you do a lot of like review mining and going through communities, being active there. Then you can kind of go through surveys if you have like a early access list or a small group of customers where you can ask them, uh, basically to find like patterns in value propositions, what they care about and buying triggers, how they find and search for software like yours. And then you can go to video calls where you hop on a call like this and you really kind of dig in deep and you're trying to really grab uh, kind of voice of customer, right? Like tangible, this, these are the words that customers use and you can copy paste those onto your landing page about uh, how they describe their problems and what they're looking for, uh, as well as like uh, influence mapping. So, hey, what are all the podcasts you listen to? And the Facebook groups that you show up in, like basically who and what do you lean on to learn uh, in your industry, right? Like where do you go to learn about stuff related to your job? Um, kind of these digital watering holes, if you will, right? And then I think it really starts with like, once you have that kind of nailed down, you have to start with your landing page on your website. This is the same thing I, that I did with, uh, with SavvyCal that worked really well. When I started with SavvyCal, we were doing like $500 in MRR maybe. And, um, you know, of course we want to kind of get down to business and start scaling stuff up and do some marketing campaigns. But I just knew like, there were still a lot of people who were signing up that were like, how is this different from Calendly? 
And, um, and like, we would try to describe it, like still wouldn't really make sense. The conversion rate was really, really low. Like Derek had sent out a bunch of blasts to his email list and like, it still wasn't really converting very well. So I just knew like, like if we do anything else, it's still not going to like land very well. We need to, we need to nail the landing page. And really what that means is we need to nail our positioning. We need to nail the messaging. We need to have like a clear, concise, compelling reason for someone to click that button and say, get started with Savvy Cal and, you know, connect my, my calendar. Um, so I, that's why I tell people now is like, okay, you go to customer research. Then you start with your landing page and your positioning. Uh, you can use what I call the only test to basically create like a compelling positioning statement where uh, you are kind of the obvious choice. This is very derivative of April Dunford's obviously awesome. <laughs> if you can't tell, uh, so I'll be using a lot from there, but you need to be an obvious choice for someone, right? Not just like marginally better, are not just different, but you need to be an obvious choice for a subset of customers. Um, once you have that down, I think the, the the temptation is to just immediately jump straight to channels finally. But also I think that your pricing and activation models really, really matter. Because again, if you, now you got someone to click the button, get started, and now what? And what a lot of people do is they'll put them to a form where it's, uh, you know, contact us or it's, uh, start your trial, but it's credit card required, or like there's just some sort of exorbitant price that they just like pull out of thin air that doesn't make any sense. And people are like, ah, ah whatever, screw it. I'll get back to this later. Right. Um, so you want to map pricing to value, not to cost or competitors, but you also want to make sure that you're picking pricing that you can learn from. And that's oriented around a uh, primary kind of value metric. That's linear with sort of the value that people get and the outcomes that your software helps them uh, achieve in their lives. Um, and also that you're like onboarding them in a very fluid, nice way. So you're not turning them off immediately. Uh, and then we can start getting to like the marketing, you know, the real marketing, kind of the scalable stuff. Uh, so I have everything on like how to launch and announce and kind of use special offers to create uh, momentum. A couple examples, for example, of, uh, with Savica, once we did the landing page, we planned for a product hunt launch. Before product hunt, though, we ran a little campaign uh, to reserve your username because there's kind of some scarcity on like the little slug. So it's savvycal.com slash Corey slash whatever the meeting ID is. Um, and so I was like, Dang, I want slash Corey. I don't want slash Corey Haynes, you know, 3691. <laughs> like <laughs> I want to be Corey. And uh, we knew that a lot of other people would too. So we sent that out to the, to the list. We said, hey, this is for customers only. You sign up today. We're about to launch a product hunt. We know there's going to be a huge wave of people coming. So like become a customer, save your own, uh, your own slug. Um, that created a lot of momentum and kind of early uh, kind of scarcity. We did another thing around a, a calendar buyout where uh, we offered to, so this is like around the end of the year is like December or January of, uh, well, December of 2020, I think it was. Uh, and um, we're like, hey, we know that you just re-upped for, you know, your annual subscription to Calendly probably but we'll buy it out. We'll basically credit the same amount to your savvy call account. You won't lose a dollar. If you switch right now, we'll get this done for you. That created a whole bunch of kind of wave. So things like that, right. Where it's like you're building this momentum and then that kind of crescendos at the end with a product hunt launch. That's kind of like the last thing that you do in your launch event. Uh, product hunt was absolutely massive for savvy call. Like really there's like a step change an inflection point in the launch uh, or sorry, in the, the MRR trajectory after that. Um, and then we get through channels. So I go through all the channels, everything from uh, content, which I think is very much like the cornerstone of marketing strategy to advertising partnerships, 
platforms. I'm literally just looking, kind of reading the, down the line. Engineers, marketing, events, community, product virality, and how that can be engineered as well, even if you're not like inherently viral. And, uh, and then guerrilla tactics. Um, the rest of the book, I'm not really sure. I kind of have some ideas for uh, like scaling. So how do you like hire and create budgets and like map a budget back to a goal? And then like some technical stuff around your tech stack and just like minimal tools and things you need to implement. But um, the real meat of it is uh, channels, obviously, but then like the work before that too, which is your landing page, customer research, pricing, and then like the launch events. Damn, that's super cool, man. Like there's there's so many things you said there that I want to like go off on on tangents with, but I know like we we have a limit here on on time. But um one thing that you didn't really dive into, and like maybe that's that's in like the the channel section there, but metrics is like something that's like super close to to mm-hmm. John and I's heart, like being being in a clipfolio, like we know that like early stage founders love to obsess about all the metrics they can track. Like once they get into the funnels and and the, and the channels, they think they have product market fit, then it's like, all right, what are we tracking? And I know that you've recently like been talking a lot about uh, this idea that like your SaaS metrics are oftentimes lying to you and like specifically talking about like LTV churn and, and attribution. What do you mean exactly by that? And is that like part of the, the channel section of the book? Yeah, actually, I, I need to figure out a place to put that in there because um, maybe they'll come in, in like the tech stack kind of section. But uh, also, given my time being the head of growth at Bear Metrics, metrics are very near and dear to my heart and something that I've spent an insane amount of hours thinking about and looking at and consulting others about. Um, everyone, you know, at Bear Metrics, actually, one of like the, the core things that I did was I would meet with about 10 to 20 kind of founders and operators a week either who were customers with questions and want to just like help and advice or with trialing uh, potential customers um, who were basically like, how do I use this? You know, what, what is the value of bare metrics? Um, so I've seen everything like any combination, John, I'm sure it's the same. Like I just, I've seen it all. There's nothing surprising and it really gives you a lot of perspective. And so I finally could just kind of like brain dumps these things where I was like, here's some kind of like quirks about your SaaS metrics that you might not be aware of. It can actually be really, really misleading. The first one actually uh, is that higher growth usually equals higher churn. This drove me absolutely bonkers at bare metrics because it felt like every time we started to grow faster, the churn would, would take up. And then everyone else on the team would be like freaking out, like, Oh, what's going on? We need to like, mm. we need to stop whatever we're doing, fix the churn. And then we can start growing again. Mm. So it was like the stop, start, stop, start, stop, start, stop. We'd like turn on the channel start doing these campaigns. Churn would tick up. We'd stop it, churn would go back down. And I was, after like the third time, I was like, wait a second. There, this, like, this isn't, uh, this happened three times in a row now. I started like really digging in with other founders and other Bearmarch's customers. Also looking at literal like growth rates and curves on the graph and like mapping that onto uh, your churn rate as well. And it's, pretty much always like a one-to-one linear correlation between higher growth equals higher churn. Why is that? It's because when you're growing more, you have a lot more top of funnel, a lot more interests, a lot more hype and momentum. And also with that, a lot, a lot more kind of the craft, the drifters, the people who are not the best fit for your product. So uh, like basically when you, when you're fast growing, a lot of metrics are going to go down. Uh, your retention is going to go down because People are going to be churning out after like the first month or two because 
they got really excited about it or they caught you when you're running an ad. Turns out they're not a great customer. Also, your conversion rate is going to go way down because again, more trials or more freemium users, um, but less conversions because they might not be a great fit or just like you caught them early. You're sort of like front loading a lot of your, your marketing. Um, uh, also your landing page, like you're getting a lot of traffic conversion rate way down. Like <laughs> I was, you know, at one point, I think the, the landing page of Metrics was converting at around like 3% from, from visitor to trial. And then like we started doing all this content marketing, all these like events and all these, uh, all these launches. And then I went all the way down to like 0.5%. And I'm like, I am the worst marketer of all time. <laughs> it's like, no, actually it's just, it's par for the course. Like it just happens. Um, so a lot of people don't realize that, but you can expect higher churn when you have higher growth. And you, if you'll see as well, like uh, really like plateaued startups, um, they have great churn. Their churn is like 0.5% or 1%. Why? Because no unqualified customers are coming through the door whatsoever <laughs> because they're not doing a lot of marketing, right? They're not doing a lot of uh, acquisition. But also you can actually have high churn if, and you can sustain high churn if you have a high reactivation rate. No one talks about reactivation at all in SaaS for some reason. I think because like no one really understands it or has like taken the time to really think about it. But reactivation is the rate of canceled customers coming back and signing up as a paid customer again. And again, drove me bonkers at Metrics. But um, I realized, you know, after like our churn would go down, our reactivation would go down too. And then uh, growth will go up, churn will go up, reactivation will go up. I'm like, what is going on here? And it turns out that some customers are just finicky, especially certain segments. I found this a lot when I started digging in uh, into like software that serves uh, freelancers, um, kind of creators, uh, and anyone who like generally doesn't have a lot of money. Actually, a lot of gym owners are like very uh, on edge with like their finances for whatever reason. I don't, I couldn't tell you why, but just like anyone in the fitness industry, they're probably going to have failed payments or they're going to cancel, come back for a next month. Or like they're always in between different things. Um, but you can actually have high churn if you have high reactivations, basically think about it as like a, a discount to your churn rate. So there was a startup that I talked to where it looked at the churn. It was like 12%. I was like, this is absolutely insane. But about half of it, about 6% of that, um, was coming back like the next month or the month later. Like mm -hmm. they had a, they had about 6% of their growth came from reactivation every month. So I was like, Oh, it's actually fine. Like it's actually about 6% truly churn. So it's sustainable. It's fine. And they made it work. Um, another one. And then I'll, I'll kind of uh, digress here is, uh, is lifetime value. I could talk about this all day long, but lifetime value is not a thing in SaaS. It just isn't, it works for one-time sales. Actually, if you guys have a, a different opinion, I'd love to hear it because I'm always trying to like test this and see how I'm wrong here or if there's any like edge cases, but uh, it works great for one-time sales um, because basically the thought is how do we quantify the expected average value of a customer over time? Um, when you have a one-time sale or like a very small product SKU with, uh, with very similar price points, it's very easy to calculate lifetime value. And that becomes useful because you know, and even if I'm like break even on the first purchase with this customer over the lifetime, they'll be profitable. Right. And that's right. the whole idea. The problem with SaaS is that it's recurring revenue. So therefore like there's kind of an, uh, multiple sales happening every month or every year. And there kind of is no end date. 
There's also a wide range of price points could be anywhere between $9 a month and $900 a month. Right. And so if you average that out, like you're going to get to a number that might be skewed lower or higher than like what's actually representative of the customer base. And also the way that you're supposed to calculate lifetime value and churn is by dividing your average revenue per customer by your user churn rate. And the thought there is that your user churn is basically the rate at like, uh, so if you take 4% user churn, for example, um, over the, the course of 12 months, in theory, you will churn through about 40% of your customer base. And so you can kind of like reverse engineer the expected time for customer to be with you, which I think for, I want to say for 4%, it's about an average life, lifespan of about two years. The problem, and here's what we found at Metrics, was that our highest paying customers stuck around the longest and their lifetime value was about like $40,000, for example. Hmm. The lowest value customers would stick around for about six months to a year on average, and their lifetime value was about $1,000. Our lifetime value evened out to like three or $4,000, but that was not a useful metric whatsoever. It was like, what do you do with that, right? How is that even useful at all? So anyways, I basically just say, don't use lifetime value. It's not useful whatsoever. People try to use it for like, CAC to LTV, just use payback period. Just use ARPU yeah. compared to, uh, compared to like multiply that to like your cost of acquisition that gives you your payback period. And that's at the end of the day, what is like the most useful um, way of thinking about lifetime value anyway. So I digress. This is fascinating, man. I think there's definitely room for like a full chapter, just uh, yeah. just on metrics, like just including this this rant here. I think your breakdown of LTV is is fascinating, especially like folks that don't like buy into the annual plan model of SaaS and are all about like the monthly recurring revenue. And like SaaS products change all the time, and the pricing model changes as well. And so, yeah, the reactivation bit too as well, like the super passionate area of mine as well. And uh, I think that's a huge untapped area. Um, yeah, I feel like we could chat about metrics all day. We, we only have a few minutes left here, but, uh, JT, I'll let you kick it off with the last question for us. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. Thanks so much for being on the show. I know you've got like a ton of stuff going on, just evident through this, this podcast. Um, one question we ask all of our guests, I'm very curious on your take is between all the things that you're doing and managing on a database, database basis, um, how do you manage being successful and happy? That's a good question. Uh, I'm glad you asked it. It's, it's a fun one for a podcast like this. Um, every week is a little bit different. Uh, I think though, for me, just knowing that I'm making progress, doing the best that I can, like I mentioned before, it's kind of like you stress, like it's only distressful when I feel like I'm not doing a good job or when I'm behind on things or when I feel like I'm letting people down. I'm very much like a, a yes man and a people pleaser. So for me, being happy, like in my work, it's just knowing that I'm doing the best that I can and that things are moving forward. And generally the way that I've set things up between swipe files, consulting, these new SaaS projects, uh, advising and random other like investing stuff that I'll do on the side. Um, I just want to make sure I'm not letting anyone down. And if I'm not doing that, then like I am, I'm pretty happy and I can kind of go at my own pace, uh, which sometimes feels slow, sometimes feels fast. Personally, um, I find that, uh, like having really strong friendships uh, and also really like a good relationship with my wife is very key to just being happy overall and in general. But I've also found, I think, especially through COVID, I don't know if you guys had a similar experience, but um, 
I, uh, I'm not happy if I don't like get outside and do something competitive once in a while. Um, so more recently I've taken up pickleball, which has been like a huge, like sort of competitive relief for me. And it's like active and I get to be outside and it's fairly casual. I'll do it with friends. So it kind of like checks all the boxes there. Um, I love basketball. I also love playing, playing poker. It's also very like social and, uh, and competitive as well. So if I do that, like one of those things, at least once a week, I can like look forward to that and kind of get my fix and it makes me happier. And it kind of like releases me to do my work as well. But I find that if I don't do my work and I'm only doing those things, I'm unhappy. If I only do work and I don't do those things, I'm also not happy. So it's like mm-hmm. having the blend of both those things to work with and kind of the, the back and forth that, uh, makes me happy. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. Love it. Thanks so much for your time, Corey. I'll let you, uh, end it for us. Why don't you, uh, plug some stuff for our audience? Sweet. Thanks for, uh, yeah, I can grab me. It's been a, a ton of fun. I love the conversation. Great question. So kudos to you guys. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Corey Haynes co, um, coreyhaines.co for like all the things that I'm working on swifiles.com for the newsletter. Uh, and also just for podcast listeners, you can use the code humans at checkout at swifiles.com slash membership for half off the swifiles membership. Uh, join us in the community, get access to the courses, office hours, access to me. Um, and I think that's pretty much it. Sweet, man. Uh, yeah, check out uh, check out the Swipe Files community. I'm a member. Uh, seen a lot of value from there. Um, I'm actually friends with a couple of people that I met in the community. So um, yeah, thanks for putting that together. And uh, thanks for taking some time and uh, chatting with us, man. It's been an awesome conversation. I feel like we could keep this going for like two or three more hours. But uh, yeah, <laughs> thanks a lot, man. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank, thank you. you guys.